0: That's Jimmy Stein. I'm Clint Lamb, and this is the Bama Online YouTube channel. Jimmy, um, still a lot to talk about. It. It's the off season, but there, there's really no such thing in college football nowadays. No. I mean, it, you got the Senior Bowl going on. You got Chris Braswell, uh, Will Riker. You've got some Bama players down there representing the Tide. That's certainly uh, a, a talking point. In things that, that deserve coverage. Uh, the basketball team plays Georgia tonight. Um, starting to play some pretty good basketball. Obviously, you want to keep the momentum going, but that's something else that's worth talking about. A lot of discussion happening over on the uh, roundtable message board at BamaOnline.com. So if you aren't already a part of the community, certainly go join. I would highly encourage it. Um, but we're going to continue on with some football talk. And we, we touched on it a little bit in the last video. And I know it's something that you wanted to discuss a little bit. And I think it's a very interesting topic. So we'll dive a little bit further into it. We'll be covering a couple of other things as well, just kind of seeing where the episode takes us. But we'll start off with Kane, uh, Kane Womack's defense. Womack, I did it again, and I, I'm going to yeah. keep doing it. Uh, uh, but let's talk hard, about his that's defense. A hard one. That's a hard it, one. It, it, it shouldn't be hard. Uh, I just, I got woe. You know, I worked so hard on that. When I found out it wasn't uh, Womack, I worked very hard to get that Womack uh programmed into my head and then they're like no you need to switch it up again because that was wrong too uh
1: i just got a head start on everybody living in mobile uh when when south alabama hired him because I, I did womack for forever until i get probably until he was on the radio being interviewed for the first time ever hearing him that was i just got a head start being down there in that that part of the, the state
0: yeah and uh I'm not going to out the person that told me the wrong thing when, because they corrected me. They're like, it's not Womack it's Womack. And I was like, Oh my bad. I will get that. Correct. I, I've, I've struggled oh. with the NI black and the black thing for forever. So I'm like, I really need to get this corrected. This is the defensive coordinator this is a big deal. Um, and then, so I hammered it, man. I said it to myself 50,000 times that day. And then come to find out that they were wrong too. They had the Mick part, right? But it's a <laughs> anyways uh we're gonna we're here to talk about his defense we're not here to talk about his last name uh i would lose that battle against anybody my, my last name's very biblical though that's what i like to tell people
1: <laughs> uh we're gonna hear to
0: talk about his defense though not not his last name jimmy what are your thoughts on this defense i mean it's gonna look in some ways it's gonna look different as far as the terminology and the personnel Uh, and how it's labeled is going to look quite a bit different than what we've been used to seeing under Nick Saban. But then also some different things they do schematically. uh, You know, There's some nuances there as well. What are your thoughts on this defense and the changes that it's going to be going through?
1: Gosh, so much. uh, I'll just start with with this. I like the hire and I like Kane Womack a lot. Uh, Even the more it's gone on, the more I've liked it, even though I liked it actually the first moment I heard – well prior actually to, to him being hired that, that it looked like that was going to happen. Uh, I was, I was excited right away, uh, because I've been a, a Kane Womack fan, uh, being from mobile and, and being up close to South Alabama all the time. I got to, to, to kind of know him in his style and, and, and listen to him on, on the radio quite a bit, see him on TV, some, and, and, uh, just kind of get to know him at least secondhand. Um, I, I'm, a real impressed by what he did at Indiana before that led to him getting the South Alabama job was super impressive. What he did up there with very limited talent, to be honest, let's remember Indiana had a couple of good seasons when Kane Womack was up there running the defense and it wasn't like they were lighting up the, the the NFL on draft day either. I mean, they they were doing this, let's be honest with three star players in the big 10 and, uh, and doing exceptionally well. That was also before the transfer portal. So, you know, he did it uh, organically uh, and then gets to South where he was the head coach, but certainly had a strong hand in what they were doing defensively. in South Alabama's success, and there's been quite a bit under Kane, is, is really primarily due to the defense and, and how good they were, especially last year. So I, I like the hire a lot. Um, now, in terms of specifically what we're here to talk about today is I think really the changes from the Nick Saban defense to, to this Kane Womack defense Let's. Nick Saban has been a part of our lives, Clint, for 17 years. Me and you have watched this from the beginning, 17 years. We've gotten used to doing it how Nick does it. It's going to be a dramatic change for us. Uh, I can't imagine how me and you are going to pour over the A-Day film uh, like it's the Zapruder film, you know, like when Kennedy got shot. I mean, we're going to look at that a million times And then the opener against Western Kentucky will probably dissect to death just simply because we can't wait to see, okay how how does how is Alabama going to play defense going forward? Because we've gotten used to it for 17 years. Uh, First, I want to talk about the similarities, because I think there are some uh, this won't be like going from, uh, hey, we learned uh, Greek and now we got to learn Chinese. I I don't think it's going to be that at all. I think there's a lot of similarities. And I'm just going to start with the glaring one. Kane Womack plays a 4-2-5 set. That's what he plays. It's a 4-2-5 defense. Four guys up front, uh, two linebackers, and five DBs. Saban played what everyone referred to as a 3-4. A 3-4 over-under is the actual term. But let's be honest. Alabama wasn't in a 3-4 very often under Nick Saban at all. Alabama was in under Nick Saban. Sort of what amounted to a 4 to be honest. I mean, with, with the Jack linebacker playing up front, and it looked like four down linemen with two off-ball linebackers and five DBs. So that's the glaring similarity to me. Really, the personnel on the field isn't going to change a lot. Uh, it will change, and we'll talk about that too. But the similarities to me just start with this. Kane's base defense is five DBs. They will almost always be in nickel. That's just what Kane Womack's defense is. And guess what? Nick Saban's defense, almost always in nickel, especially coming off last season, Clint. We talked about it going into Michigan where a real question for the two of us was, are we going to see Alabama in regular? Because we haven't seen Alabama in regular or base all season long. This game sort of screams for it. Yet, did we see Alabama in regular? No, no, no. They were nickel. Almost the entire game against Michigan, too, because Nick Saban's defense really became over the years extremely nickel based. I would say 75 percent to 80 percent of all snaps with the remaining snaps basically in dime on third and long and, and second and long situations. Uh, so I was a lot of talking, but really it was just to say for all the differences and we're going to talk about those. There is one glaring similarity, and that's the 5-DB look. It's not really a change at all.
0: Yeah, and, and I think what I like about Womack and what he brings to the table is I think he's a very X's and O's guy. I think he understands football on a very deep level. He's got a great mind for it. He's very innovative. But he's also, he has the ability to teach that to his players. I don't always think that the genius offensive or defensive minds have the ability to relay and help others understand. They have the mind for it, they have the ability to comprehend it. And sometimes there's some frustration in the communication of that because you don't understand why someone else doesn't. Like you're trying to explain it to someone, but. I will say uh, my my brother is not a teacher by any means as far as his profession uh couldn't be much further from it but he's great at teaching people things you know whether it be um you sit down with some friends to play a drinking game it's always you know hey have Jake explain it he's phenomenal at it if you know you're trying to anybody that needs help with chemistry or some kind of math problem or whatever he's great at teaching you and helping you understand I think Wamick uh, has that ability. And I think that that will be significant as far as, because Alabama's got the talent defensively. I understand they've lost a ton, but as far as the the pure four five stars, uh, you know, there's going to be some inexperience and stuff. There's going to be some growing pains, but I will say that the talent is up there with anybody in the country still, uh, or at least very, very close to it. And I think, Nick Saban had the ability to teach. I think he had the ability to motivate. I think he had a lot of those factors. Womack doesn't have that presence necessarily. He doesn't have that respect on a national scale where he's. I mean, this guy was going out of the. Nick Saban was going out of the country and people were recognizing him and recognizing the Alabama A and all that stuff. Like he talked about that. Womack doesn't have it to that degree or even close to it, but I think his he's got some similar traits as far as understanding of the game, but also being able to relay that in a way where players understand it.
1: No, I, I like that a lot. Um, I, I've described him similarly. Uh, he he is a, a, a you know he he's a he he's a professorial type guy. I mean he he teaches defense. I think other coaches. This true a true story. Other coaches from other staffs I I know have called Kane Womack and said, how did you defend these guys? I mean, he he gets that uh, from other coaches like, Hey, what, what, what did you see when you watch tape and how, you know, what was your thinking when you came up with your game plan? Uh, Because we want to sort of take advice from you in terms of how you do this, that, that, and and I knew that well before uh, I I knew he would one day uh, coach at Alabama. So he is, Got that reputation amongst coaches. Well, most guys like that. Here, I'll use an example that Alabama fans, the older ones, might might know. Maybe not the the younger ones like Clint, but the I older fans the might remember Homer Smith, uh, who, who was Alabama's OC in, in a, the eighty nine season, uh, and then came back uh, in in the early uh, in the mid part of Gene Stallings' uh, tenure. Uh, Homer was probably the smartest OC Alabama's ever had in terms of IQ. It was just off the charts. He probably was literally a genius-level offensive mind and had that reputation nationally, if not globally, for being one of the smartest offensive minds in all of college football. And a lot of coaches would tell you that. That's not the media. That's Coaches will tell you, yeah, Homer Smith's one of the smartest guys ever done this. Well, Homer never became a head coach. Uh, Homer was never known as – an outstanding recruiter that was not something you ever heard and that's because homer had his specialty right he, he he was he was unbelievable on the grease board he was an unbelievable teacher but he was never going to head up a program or be a great recruiter because maybe he didn't get along one-on-one with people extremely well he wasn't a charismatic in front of the group uh that just wasn't his thing um. Uh, Kane Womack, I think, is an excellent balance of being that, that super smart, hey, innovative. Other coaches are like, hey, we want to pick your brain. But at the same time, he's pretty good in front of the group. He's pretty good in front of the team. He is going to be a power five head coach. Uh, for those not familiar with South Alabama football, South uh, two seasons ago in 2022 won 10 games. It was probably the best team. In school history, Uh, they were extremely competitive, extremely good uh, for for South. Uh, And then they thought going into 2023 that they would be really good again. And had South won 10 games again, Kane Womack wouldn't be the D.C. at Alabama, in my opinion. He'd be the head coach somewhere at at, at a pretty nice-sized program. I think he was kind of on the cusp of becoming a head coach at a Power 5 program. But South had some injury issues at quarterback, uh, that and, and as we all know, that's going to sink a program that's not uh, Alabama or, or Texas or Ohio State. Um, they struggled at quarterback because of injuries, struggled on offense as a result, uh, and even though their defense was outstanding, uh, South finished 6-6. Six and six. So Kane uh, did not get that bump up to power five head coach and instead went in this different direction, but a direction that I bet he will tell you um, – is still putting him on that path to being a Power 5 head coach. So he's going to be one uh, because he's very good to the team. He's very good with the media, uh, and uh, people will like him a lot. So he's very likable for for a good teacher.
0: Yeah, and what I like about this um, split is – and we've seen other programs attempt it. It doesn't always work, but I like where they went to get their defensive – co-defense coordinators. I like the fact that they went to Buffalo and they went to South Alabama. Like these are guys that are still climbing, you know, uh, Brian Harson goes and gets Derek Mason. I think first of all, that was pretty forced uh, by not Brian Harson, And I think that caused some issues, but also he had been a head coach in the sec. I understand it was Vanderbilt. uh, But I mean, he had been at the highest level as far as the competition is concerned. I think – so there wasn't – I'm not saying that he couldn't get hired away from there uh, and he couldn't continue to climb the ladder, but you've kind of – in some ways you've reached the pinnacle, like you're in the SEC. These other coaches, they're not – they haven't even been power five. So it's like they're still climbing that ladder. There's a reason that these guys took a step away from being the head man in charge to come to a place like Alabama. And But what I do like about their head coach experience if you, is you now got two guys – If you are uh, Kalen DeBoer, you essentially hand the reins to them defensively. They know how to manage things from a bird's eye view. They've done it as a head coach. But instead of asking them to do that on the entire team, you say both of you guys focus on, you've got your positions that you work on or work with, but you also, you guys run the defense. Y'all handle everything together. Uh, You get two different opinions on things, two different defensive minds but two guys that know how to not only manage a defense as you know a defensive play caller but also head coach experience and I think that's very valuable to being able to turn that over to them and you don't have to manage them as the head coach as much you can still have your brain trust with uh, with Ryan Grubb offensively and you all can go to work on that side and then you got the two defensive guys I, I like that makeup and I'm not saying that it's automatically gonna work because it hasn't always worked. But I will say I think it's a really good approach and one that has a very good chance of being successful.
1: I like how and I learned this under Sabin so much of my own philosophies, even though I've been around. I'm an uh, older guy, but so much of my philosophies have been, been sort of shaped and forever changed by Nick Sabin. and I'll always refer to, well this is how Sabin did it and think that that's you know the, the, the right thing to do all the time. Uh, one thing I learned about, about coaching and, and hiring coaches, from Nick Saban is I'm a big fan of hiring ascending coaches. Ascending coaches. You just made a great point about Derek Mason going all. He wasn't ascending in the profession. He was probably a little to be honest at the time probably a little bitter because he really did a good job at Vanderbilt and got fired for it and now is working for Brian Harson. Uh I, I I can imagine not speaking for him and he might bristle at, at me me describing it that way but I'm just saying you could sort of see that not working. When you hire ascending coaches, they're eager. They're ready to put in the hours. They're ready to work. They're, they're climbing. There's a lot of energy in ascending, right? There's hunger. less energy in descending. And energy is exactly what you need in this position. And that hunger and that, hey, I'm going to get the next thing. And for me to get the next thing, I have to excel at this thing. And and that that's what one thing I learned under Nick Saban. I heard a story that we can start telling some Saban stories now. Maybe we, we couldn't tell uh, before when he was here. But uh, one thing I heard is, uh, I won't say, but a, but a, a head coach from a, another prominent program called Coach Saban for advice and said, you know, uh, I got to turn things around. And you kind of know my situation here. What do you suggest? And, and the very first thing he told him was, your, your staff needs to be younger. You need to get a younger staff. He used the term younger uh, in the story that I heard. And, and, and then I think that that's the same point we're making here, ascending coaches and, and what Kalen DeBoer has done here in hiring Kane Womack and Mo Linguist, the two you point out, and even Colin Hitchler, the safeties coach, I would describe the same way, uh, ascending coaches, guys that are Kane Womack's going to be a head coach at a power five. Mo Linguist would like to be a head coach. at maybe a place that's easier to win than Buffalo, which is very tough in football. Um, I'm sure that uh, Colin Hitchler, who has a lot of now Big Ten experience, and now SEC experience, his next step is D.C., somewhere like in Alabama, and this is a step in that direction. Freddie Roach, uh, obviously, as now uh, coached under Nick Saban and now coaching under Kalen DeBoer. Freddie Roach all the time looking like a, a, a brighter star in the coaching profession. Again, all of these guys ascending, and all of these guys are going to have energy put in the hours and put in the work because they're climbing up the ladder they're not falling down it
0: yeah exactly and i think you set yourself up where you know it's kind of like georgia Like georgia can withstand the loss of a dan lanning because of the way that they've structured things defensively like you had will muschamp still in the building you had a guy who was ready to go and uh, ready to go in glenn Schumann. uh alabama is kind of doing the same thing like if you were to lose a kane wamick uh you know, I think you have the right guys. I mean, obviously, language could end up being, you know, your, your, your sole DC. You've also got Hitchler and, and all those guys and 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 some other guys who are potential candidates. Like, you have it to where you can kind of keep some continuity going, elevate certain guys, uh, condense the responsibilities from maybe three who are handling handling that right now to two, and, you know, it, it's only going to benefit the continuity of what you're doing defensively and, and kind of keeping things going where you don't have to worry as much. And I don't, I don't think that DeBoer is going to have to worry about the coaching poaching as much as Nick Saban did. Uh, but at the same time, it's still Alabama. If they're in the national title conversation and they're getting good play defensively, These guys are going to be up for head coaching jobs and they're going to be sought after and someone's going to leave. I think it's it's kind of looking ahead. It's both short term and a little bit long term where it's not just, hey, one or two years. Maybe you can build this thing into, you know, three, four or five years of having some continuity on that side of the football where what you're doing offensively, you you have faith in, in your ability to maintain things on that side. You can have yourself a nice, nice little stretch and and stay competitive because I think coach retention is very important. I think one of the most remarkable things about what Nick Saban did at Alabama was the fact that he was able to keep Alabama in the conversation every year despite constant coaching turnover. I mean, look at Dabo Sweeney loses coordinators, things fall apart. Ed Orgeron loses coordinators, you know, wins in, and and Joe Burrow plays a huge part of that as well. When you've got a one of the best talents of all time on the college level at the most important position. Him leaving is going to impact things in a major way too, but the, it, he didn't have the ability to sustain because he was more of the rah-rah guy and and you have to hire really good coordinators and guys that are going to stick around or you need to be good at constantly hitting on those. I mean, Sam Pittman has kind of seen a drop off at Arkansas after losing some coordinators. Like things started off really well. You made some home run hires early and he hadn't had he hadn't done as good of a job replacing some of those guys. And that's hurt that program. Nick Saban kept that stuff going for forever. I mean, he just, it was reloading and it was, you know, and, and him being a defensive minded guy, you knew the defense was going to be in good hands overall, but his ability to constantly at least get serviceable play out of the offense, whether you like the offensive coordinators or not, they were all at least good enough. I mean, you know, say what you will about Bill O'Brien, but that offense was scoring a lot of points and and you can say, well, that was because of Bryce. I'm saying, Bill O'Brien did enough with what he had to at least keep them relevant as an offense and, and score a lot of points and keep them competitive. Uh, give Nick Saban a ton of credit for being able to do that. But, uh, and, and Kalen DeBoer might be able to do that as well. It, it won't be, he's not proven on that front, in my opinion, yet. And so I think it's nice that you're setting things up where you've got multi years of, you know, getting uh, some continuity on that side of the football.
1: Yeah, you know, I think a great example of what you're talking about is Clemson. You know, they, they made a good run at Alabama during the middle part of the Saban era, starting around 2014 through, through 2018, 2019. Uh, you know, Clemson was extremely good. Uh, and in and, and part, I credit that towards Dabo had a great staff and somehow kept them all together. Almost all during Clemson's run, the Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence Clemson. They had basically the same staff. There wasn't a lot of poaching going on. And in fact, when Clemson started descending as a program, is really when the offensive coordinator left and then the new OC, then he left. And then, you know, Venables left for Oklahoma. And uh, I, I think Dabo has not done as nearly as good of a job as a Nick Saban did in replacing staff. So uh, I'm hopeful, like you, Clint, that uh, DeBoer puts together this all star staff and is able to keep them together at least for a while. Because it is going to be a strain when you have to start replacing these people. Uh, Saban, uh, what do I say all the time, drives people nuts, right? When I say Saban didn't spoil us, he ruined us. Uh, and that's because when DeBoer loses coaches, we think as Alabama fans watching Nick Sabin do it, that it's just easy to go out and find uh, the equal to what it is that you just lost. Uh, that's not reality. Nick Saban did not have any of us grounded in reality or living in reality. He was a cyborg, not a human being. And Kalen DeBoer, until proven differently, I'm going to assume he's a human being and not a, a cyborg. Uh, hopefully he proves me wrong. But I do think that uh, I, I love the makeup of the staff. I love that, that there's some head coaches. Uh, we talked about this in the last show. When your side of the ball is your specialty, it's, it's very important to hire on the other side of the ball what amounts to the head coach. That's what Nick Saban did when nick was like hey i got the defense i can i'll i'll help the defense i'm even going to coach the cornerbacks every day in practice and i'm going to coach my defensive coaches to coach my defense the way i want it coached but i'm not going to mess with the offense that's not my thing i'm just going to hire someone that i can trust to do what's right on that side of the ball a head coach of the offense and look at the guy sabin hired sark head coach, Lane Kiffin, now a head coach, Bill O'Brien had been the head coach of Penn State and the Houston Texans. Uh, you know, we could go on and on. Even Loxley had been a head coach. Um, you have to go all the way back to like maybe Jim McElwain uh, before you get to someone that wasn't a head coach. Uh, and then McElwain, of course, became a head coach uh, after leaving Alabama. So Kalen DeBoer has done sort of the same thing, right? His thing is offense. So he's like, I need a head coach of the defense. So who did he hire? The head coach from South Alabama, the head coach from Buffalo. And I mean, that's who's going to run his defense. It makes such perfect sense that he would hire someone that's used to having a ton of responsibility because whoever runs the defense at Alabama now will have a ton of responsibility because Kalen DeBoer is probably going to rightfully and smartly spend most of his time on the offensive side of the ball.
0: Yeah. And I think that it's important. Recruiting has always been important. Like for Nick Saban, he always put an emphasis on recruiting. So you had to be a good recruiter or he structured his staff. That's going to be made up of predominantly a lot of good recruiters. But I think in today's college football, that's even more important because it's not just about the guys who can establish relationships with high school players and recruits and enough to get them to sign on the dotted line. You also have, need to worry about having a coach that has the relationship-building ability to maintain those relationships post-signing when they're on the roster, because they can just bounce if, if you don't. And I think that's what made Travaris Robinson such an important piece, was he had that ability to recruit high school, he had the ability to maintain relationships, and he was very popular amongst the players on the team. But I think... And But this is the struggle. This is what makes it difficult to get that guy. You're not going to find those types of guys who can also coach at a very high level anywhere. There's not a ton of them out there. You either get the guy who's great at building relationships or you get the guy who's very good at calling the X's and O's and stuff. And I think that's something that there's a balance there. And Alabama lost Travaris Robinson, and it's possible they would have lost Travaris Robinson even if Nick Saban had stayed the head coach. Because I think he was battling with, do I hand him the reins of being the defensive coordinator and the play caller uh, so I can maintain what he brings from a recruiting standpoint? And I don't know what the decision on that would have been, but it's possible that he would have let him walk. Uh, you know, But he also understands the importance of you know, the recruiting side and, and the maintaining and all that stuff. So it's possible he would have made him co-DC or something. My point in all this is to say, I think the task that DeBoer has got ahead of him and what Nick Saban had in the back half of his, really more, not just the back half, really the last third of his coaching tenure at Alabama, it's way more difficult than what Nick Saban dealt with when he first got to Alabama, just from uh, what you need in your staff. Um, and and so you know I, I think that that's important to note as well as there's a balance. And I think offensively, You know, you you were, uh, Nick Saban was looking for that. Now he had the benefit of it was the Alabama brand and it was him and even offensive like recruits, they wanted to play for him and play under the best. And so you didn't have to have as many of those guys on the offensive side. And I think what will keep that side of the football going for Alabama now is the staff that's been brought in. That's their bread and butter. I think they connect with people really well. All the Washington players love playing for DeBoer, love playing for Grubb, and I think that now his task is making sure that that remains a key cog on the defensive side, and I think he's got some really good guys to keep that going, and I think keeping Freddie Roach is a lot more important than people realize. Everybody talks about how the defensive line hadn't been what it once was, and Freddie Roach's role in that, he's a good recruiter, Uh, he's a, I think he's a good position coach and he's very well respected. And I don't think Alabama fans fully appreciate or know how important it was for Alabama to keep him on staff.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing I bring up all the time about, about Freddie Roach, when I I read criticism of, of him and, you know, Hey, it wasn't what it was. Well, at one point you had, what, Ashawn Robinson, Jaron Reed, Jonathan Allen? I mean, they're all on there on the team at the same time. Yeah, it's a little tough to recreate that, you know, but regardless of that, um, you know, Alabama was big under Nick Saban and using consultants. And uh, hey, what I'm saying is not a secret. It was literally in a whole Sports Illustrated article. So it's not a secret, but Nick Saban often consulted with Pete Jenkins. Pete Jenkins is considered the greatest defensive line coach in the history of football. Uh, That's not Jimmy's opinion. That's Nick Saban's opinion. That's the opinion of uh, coaches throughout the country in college football and the NFL. He's a legend at LSU. Uh, But but Pete Jenkins is considered far and wide the best defensive line coach to ever do it. So he would consult with Nick. He would come to practice and watch Alabama practice. He would watch tape of Alabama practice. And he would give opinions. So for anyone that has a low opinion of Freddie Roach, the coach, it's obviously – Obviously, not shared by Pete Jenkins because Pete Jenkins watched Alabama practice. Pete Jenkins watched tape of Alabama practice, and Pete Jenkins watched tape of Alabama play football. And again, he's the greatest defensive. If 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 Freddie Roach was a subpar defensive line coach, I'm sure Pete Jenkins' job as a consultant was to share that, you know, with Nick Saban. And obviously, that was not the case because year after year, as we've seen, Saban has kept Freddie. So. That, that's the only seal of approval that I need, you know, to know that, that Freddie is doing a good job. Then you just look at recruiting where I believe he was the national recruiter of the year once. I mean, when you look at who Alabama signs, I think Freddie is responsible for signing as many kids to the current roster as any coach that we have. And secondly, what's he doing coaching wise on the field? Well, it's not producing NFL players in droves. But there is a clear pattern of producing an NFL player each and every year, at least one each and every year, whether you know this year it's going to be Justin Aboigby, last year is Byron Young, year before that is Phil Mathis, year before that is Christian Barmore. I mean, there was one fairly highly sought NFL player, a day two type guy, uh coming out every year. So good players in, good players out. I think that's all you can ask of a coach, you know go recruit good players, develop them, turn them into pro football players. And and it, it seemed to me that Freddie was doing that with some consistency. So I, I think keeping Freddie being that bridge from the old staff to the new staff and uh, Courtney Morgan, uh, I hope a lot of people listening to watch that Courtney Morgan interview uh, conducted by Ari Wasserman uh, about, you know, Courtney Morgan's uh, approach to recruiting. He specifically cited Freddie as a reason that they were able to keep the ship afloat and, and land Ryan Williams. He credited Freddie uh, by name. Uh, you got to read between the lines a little bit in that video because he can't talk about Ryan Williams yet. Cause Ryan hasn't signed, but uh, reading between the lines, it's clear he was crediting Freddie uh, who did not, by the way, Freddie was not one of the primary recruiters for, uh, for Ryan either. That was really T Rob and Holman Wiggins were, were the main people recruiting uh, Ryan Williams under the old staff and Freddie sort of came in to save the day and told DeBoer could get his guy Shep, uh, who Courtney also uh, credited with. Well, then Ryan finally got to meet Coach Shep, and then we knew that would make a big difference because uh, every wide receiver that meets Coach Shep really likes him. And uh, if you've seen video of Coach Shep, uh, that's Jamarcus Shepard, the new wide receiver coach, you'd see why. Uh, Real engaging personality. So uh, I I love this defensive staff. And now we can uh, talk about what we expect to see out of them, uh, X's and O's wise.
0: Yeah. And, and one, one thing that I want to bring up, Jimmy, how many five stars do some of these recruiting services have each year?
1: Right at 30 or 32.
0: And why is that? Do you know?
1: It's based on the NFL draft and the number of first round picks.
0: Okay. So anybody ranked outside of those top 32 picks. If those guys end up being developed into day two talents, you know, adjusting Justin Aboiby's ranked in the top 100, but not in the top 32, he's somewhere, you know, right. 80s, 90s. If he ends up being a day two pick, you developed him into what he needed to be. If Byron Young, Phil, Phil Mack, all these guys. So my point is, is that what Freddie Roach needed to get out of these guys he got, Alabama wasn't recruiting the caliber of players, the Jonathan out, the five-star guys, the guys that were in that top 32. It's real interesting how that works. All those five stars go first round. Uh Not all. I mean, Quinn Williams wasn't a five-star. He was ranked outside the top 150 or right around in that 150 range. But right. he ends up being one of the highest drafted players Alabama had under Nick Saban going number three overall. So I'm not saying the development can't happen to a point where you get that, but that's a lot more rare. Nick Saban got out of guys where the expectations for them most of the time. Um, and Um I think that there, there's not been enough said. Everybody's like, well, you know, it's because, you know, players don't want to play for – or defensive linemen don't want to play for Freddie Roach. Like, it's clearly he's that – it's like, that doesn't make any sense. He's recruiting these other positions, and they love him to death, but the guy – his his position, uh, the guys who are going to actually be playing for him and, and, and practicing with him every day, they don't want to do that. I think it's more schematic in what Alabama was asking its defensive exactly. linemen to do than anything that had to do with Freddie Roach. It made no sense. Anybody that, that would say he's not a good recruiter when it comes to his own position, I think he was a fine recruiter when it came to his own position, but he was working against schematics and, and what Alabama asked his defensive lineman to do compared to a Clemson or someone else.
1: 100% true, and and I know people don't want to hear that, but it, that, that's 100% true. While Saban was here, our scheme uh, worked against us in terms of recruiting defensive linemen, made it difficult, not impossible, because they they were they signed a lot of five-star talents throughout the Saban era on the defensive line. James Smith, for instance, on the team right now was five star, and he was a recent signee. Uh so it did happen, but it did make it tough. Uh a lot of negative recruiting you had to overcome because I've even heard this, it's not true, but I, I've heard this on the recruiting staff that that we're recruiting a defensive lineman and and the the rival teams would tell the kids we're recruiting. Um, Alabama runs a two gap system, a three, four odd front two gap system. That's what they run. There is not a single two gap defensive lineman in the entire pro football hall of fame. That's what they would tell them. That's not true, but it is true that they're more rare than the, than the even front guys. That is true, but they would, that is a story that I know is out there and 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 it's true. That's what those guys would hear. Like your job is going to be to take up blockers. That's what they want you to do. They want you to they want you to take up two offensive linemen and free up linebackers to make plays. You're not going to be allowed to sack a quarterback. You're not going to make tackles for loss. You're not going to do the sort of things that get you noticed by NFL scouts. You're just out there to take up blockers, and uh, that's why there's no, uh, you know, odd man front guys in, in the NFL Hall of Fame. Uh, and again, we we know that's not true, but that's the sort of thing that Freddie and the other defensive line coaches under Saban had to recruit against uh, in their, in their time at Alabama.
0: Yeah. I mean, and and it's like, you know, you just look across the board. Uh, I mean, you know, a a guy like Ashawn Robinson, five-star, according to some services ranked right outside the top, you know, 35, you know, somewhere in that 35 to 45 range goes high second round. Um, you know, and he was viewed as, I mean, he's all American. I mean, he viewed as a very good defensive lineman. But his skill set, and so Alabama. First of all, you got to identify those guys who you feel like you can't take just any defensive lineman and two gap him. You've got to be able to hold the point of attack, control your offensive lineman who's, who's across from you, and be able to shed blocks and make tackles, or you know, uh, you know, uh, take gaps, uh, backside gaps, and things like that. It's just it's a, there's a lot more to it than I think that a lot of the average fan realizes, and I think Freddie Roach is very well respected, and I'm glad that he's kind of getting recognition. Because I feel like the fan base has been too hard on him, uh, way too hard on him, speaking candidly. And I, I feel like it needs to be going really in the other direction because uh, he's been a key cog in 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 keeping this whole thing together as uh it has been already been mentioned. Let's talk about some, you know, let's talk about the defensive line. Let's keep things going on that front. And just, you know, in Kane Womick's defense and how certain guys are gonna fit. You've got the bandit position, which is really just a big bodied Defensive lineman, a Justin O'Boy type, a Jonathan Allen type, a you know Byron Young, where they're going to be playing edge in a lot of situations on early downs. Sometimes they kick inside, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they come off the field, uh, or you know, in 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 Womick's defense, because I don't think they had all these different types of players. You might not see the subbing as much. They might leave them out there in some passing situations where maybe. They weren't just a phenomenal pass rusher, but my point is, is that you're. I think you're going to see more rotation at that position, but I also think there are some candidates there. You've also got you know a couple of defensive tackles. They like big, strong-bodied guys. Uh, there's still something to be said about the space eaters and and their ability to control. I think that plays a role. You can get some playing time, but th- this defense is going to be a little bit more disruptive, in my opinion, up front and more penetrating than what we saw, you know, at times uh, under Nick Saban.
1: Exactly. I I see more of a playmaking group up front, back to an even man front, no more two gap stuff. It'll be a lot of one-on-one stuff, a lot of, like you said, penetrating playmaking, better interior pass rush, probably uh, from this group, uh, from this scheme and uh, that bandit position, uh, that we're talking about now, I, I'm so intrigued by how Kane Womack's going to use it. I think he did a good job explaining what type of personnel we're likely to see in Bandit. It's 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 a defensive lineman first and foremost. No one should get confused that that's a linebacker uh, under the you no know, no. This is a defensive lineman that's going to play the Bandit spot, but not a necessarily a defensive tackle. Uh, it's going to be more of an agile player, an agile athletic defensive linemen who I see their job first and foremost is to set the edge in the run game first and foremost you want a strong body there that is going to sort of be a wall that's going to say hey you know you're not you're not getting outside over here I'm going to force everything inside and I'm going to be a wall on this side in the run game that's why they'll be on the strong side uh where the tight end is where most runs are and uh you know, I agree with you totally. The right person for that role in last year's defense was Justin Abouby, and and, and would have been ideal. Now he's going to move on, which makes the bandit position really interesting. My my question uh, for for Kane Womack, if you're listening, Kane, and, and you know you should be instead of recruiting, uh, <laughs> uh, is I, I'm curious as to whether Bandit will be a sub to spot based on down and distance. I, I have no idea if it is or not under Kane because I watch South but I didn't watch South that close. I'm just watching them play football. I don't, I don't pay attention to stuff like that, but I will at Alabama. Uh, is the bandit position going to be one guy on first and 10 and third and two and a different guy on third and 10? Uh, under Alabama, at, uh, under Saban, it would be a similar question to, to you know, using what we call dime rabbits, meaning that in dime and certain certain patterns, situations on third and 10 third and 12 Saban outside up front had two light outside linebackers famously a couple years ago Will Anderson and Dallas Turner would both be on the field at the same time rushing the passer and we call those dime rabbits under Nick Saban so is Kane Womack going to have something similar when it's third and 12 is his outside guys one of them still going to be a 280 pound player um I, I, maybe, maybe, and I'm not criticizing. I'm asking. I, I don't know. It's uh, that's going to be what I'm talking about in terms of brand new stuff for us, Clint. In terms of of us dissecting Alabama all the time, is Bandit going to be one guy, Justin Abogbe, and and Aboigbe's backup that's like another Abogbe, or is it going to be one guy when it's a rundown and one guy when it's a certain passing down? I'm I'm real curious about that. I'll also say this. Uh, I think we got a couple of guys who look like bandits to me. I'll name one is LT Overton, I think is is to me, his name is all, all over that spot uh in terms of his size and speed and and athleticism and what he wants to do at Alabama, which is different than what he did at AM. I, I can easily see him in that bandit role. You might even see an outside linebacker like Keon Keeley grow into a bandit type role. I don't rule that out but what I specifically want to ask you or just throw this out there is I know he's bigger than what we imagine a bandit, an ideal bandit to be in this defense, but I don't rule out a guy like Tim Smith playing out there, maybe not on third and 12, but I think in the rundown type situations on first and 10 and and second four, and, and based on, you know, if the other team's got 12 personnel in, I think a guy like Tim Smith is athletic enough to play the bandit spot and get on the field and play a lot, even though he might not be ideal to play that spot in, in third and 10.
0: Yeah, um, that's certainly possible. Uh, I could see that. You know, and in, 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 imagining a defensive front, uh, including four men, that's got Jaheim Otis, Tim Keenan, and Tim Smith all on the field at the same time, that would be pretty wild. Uh, or James Smith, you know, mixed in there somewhere. James Smith is another guy who I think could play that a a little bit. If you're looking to go big, and I mean, we've seen that before. It's not like that's completely foreign. Um, You know, uh, Pete Carroll, uh, he had a guy by the name of Red Bryant with with the Seattle Seahawks during the Legion of Boom days back in the early, what, 2010s, I guess. Uh, And, I mean, he was a 320, 325-pound defensive tackle that played in for them. That elephant end is what they called it. And it was just a massive presence and And it was a strong side guy. And it was like, good luck running on the perimeter. And that's when you look at what South Alabama wants to achieve, like running zone against this defense is very difficult. Uh, it, it's, it, I mean, it, because of the different ways that they can attack you and how they use the wolf position and how they use the Husky position, uh, you know, the, the off-ball linebackers are very active, and that's what I like about Deontay Lawson and Jihad Campbell and their role in, in this entire thing. Um, you know, Keely, we were asked on the message board about Keely and, and Pierre as well and where we think they'll line up as far as do they play wolf, do they play bandit. Uh, I think Pierre is more of a wolf. I think Keely is also a wolf, but I wouldn't be shocked at all if you know if he can hold up and he can he can man up against the run, which I think he's got run stopping traits. I think he's gotta improve some things, but if he can become a serviceable good run defender what what Alabama's had with Justin B and and Jonathan Allen and those types of guys is you have this like four three base end on early downs that you need to move inside on passing downs because they don't have the twitch and the ability to turn the corner on tackles. They can do it a little bit, but they're not great at it. Uh, If you can get a guy like Keon Keeley to 260, 265 pounds, and he can hold up as an edge run defender on those early downs, you don't have to sub somebody in necessarily on passing downs and move him inside. In fact, you wouldn't want to do that. You would want to leave him outside and let him do what he would probably do best, which is get after the quarterback, uh, continuing in the same role, which is that edge player. And I think that's kind of beneficial because it's not situation specific. Like it doesn't matter what the what the down and distance is. It doesn't matter if they go hurry up on, you know, uh, they, they they run a play to catch you off guard on third down and then go hurry up for first down, and now you've got you know, uh Keeley and and another true edge guy out there, and Keeley's having to try to play inside on a uh on a obvious rundown. Uh it it's he's about there doing what he's always doing, which is playing on the outside. You know, I think that could be beneficial, but he's got to prove that he can do the run stopping stuff very well. Like that is such a the bandit needs to be able to stop the run effectively. And um, you know, as far as South Alabama and what they did, I can tell you Uh, Jamie Sheriff was their starting bandit. Uh, he played close to 600 snaps last year. He led the team in total pressures, but then you had Brock Higdon, which was the backup bandit, bandit. And he played about 250, uh, just over 250. And the thing about that is he averaged probably just over 20 snaps a game, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 21, 22 snaps per game. And he also was a very efficient pass rusher. I think he finished. Seventh on the team with 14 pressures, but when you look at his pass rush opportunities, it's way less than a lot of the guys in front of him. Um, as far as the defensive linemen are concerned, Jamie Sheriff, by far, you know, he had 294 pass rush snaps, and the, the Wolf, which was Will he had 179, because he's going to play a lot, like I, I've mentioned before, about a third of the snaps going to be playing off ball, playing in the apex uh so not and doesn't have as many pass rush opportunities and the wolf really doesn't even though they will get, it needs to be a primarily a pass rusher i mean that that's going to be your when you, i don't think you have to necessarily look at the size of these guys look at the responsibilities the bandit needs to be a guy who's who's comfortable playing out there on the edge but can stop the run effectively and can provide some pass rushing juice the wolf needs to be primarily a pass rusher probably your best pass rusher but they also need to have that Dallas Turner ability where they can play off the ball and be comfortable doing that in more of a, an off-ball linebacker role. And they need to be comfortable playing in space, dropping into coverage, doing some of those things. Not because they're going to be doing it 50% of the snaps, but about a third, they're going to be lined up off the ball. And you're going to see them, You know, like I said, I think in the last video, Dallas Turner, I think, averaged about six and a half coverage snaps per game. Ah, uh, the wolf this past year, just the starter for South Alabama doubled that with between thirteen and fourteen, so needs to be comfortable handling some of those responsibilities. It doesn't matter what size I mean, if it's a two hundred and twenty five pound you know defensive end or or outside linebacker or whatever you want to call it, but they're elite at stopping the run and they can handle those bandit responsibilities. They'll probably play bandit, but it's just you very rare you're not probably going to get that. it's my point so um I agree with you. I think Jordan Renald, as far as the bandit, ideally built for him. you know, And, and I think he also, not an overly dominant uh, pass rusher, but a, the power profile is incredible on this guy. And I think he could be a true three-down bandit playing out there on the edge where if if he's your starter, there are going to be plenty of passing situations where you go ahead and leave him out there. You don't ask him to kick inside. You might ask him to kick inside some. I don't think it's as much of a necessity as it will be for a Jamerian Latham. Or, you know, lieutenant Overton's got a little bit of that, too. I think he could probably stay outside. You're probably not going to want to bump him inside a ton. Um, but Renault is very intriguing to me. Overton's very intriguing. I think that's a position that can end up being very effective in Alabama's defense.
1: Yeah, Kane Womack's probably going to be a little surprised uh, when, you know, because we, we... – <laughs> For, for now, we know the personnel better than he does. That's not going to last very long, but, but for now we do. Um, and I, I think he's showing up, and uh, I think we used lat- – in last week's show, Clint, we used the, the term toy box a lot. Uh, he is going to find a lot of fun toys in the toy box because he didn't have a lot of these uh, or really any of these uh, premium athletes uh, that he's got at Alabama. And I do think that even though these positions are new – there are guys who are really good fits. And I agree. LT Overton and Jordan Renata in particular are ideal guys, I think, for his bandit spot. Plenty of guys for the Wolf spot. Uh, I would even start with Q Robinson, who I think is going to be the starter at Wolf. That's just a projection I'd have today. Uh, Q can, can do all of those Wolf things. He's probably Alabama's best pass rusher on this team, at least in terms of the older guys. Yet he has off ball linebacker traits. Uh, that's the number one thing about linebackers today, Clint. It's it's so different. All the older people listen to the show. You just have to change your mindset in terms of what you're looking for on the field. When when I was growing up, probably well over fifty percent of plays, if not sixty to seventy percent of plays, were run plays, especially in college, even in the NFL. And linebackers were first and foremost run stoppers. But now, pretty much everybody in football, period. Everybody throws the ball on over 50% of all snaps. So if the opposition's throwing it on 50% of all snaps, then every single player that you put on the field has to be a good pass defender. And at linebacker, that means one of two things. You're either rushing the passer or you're covering someone that's running a route or you're responsible for dropping into a zone. But that's what you ask of linebackers. It's not Mike Singletary and Dick Butkus anymore. It's really not even Rolando McLean anymore, to be honest. Although I think Rolando is better suited for it than the old school guys. But the point being, your linebackers all have to be very good in pass protect and pass coverage, meaning either dropping, covering someone man to man, or rushing the passer. You better do one of those things because if all you want to do is defend the run in the tackle box, there's probably just not a spot for you in modern football.
0: Yeah, and you know, when when you look across the board, plenty of interior defensive line options. I think Bandit, there's several good options. We've already mentioned those. I will be curious to see, you know, Jamirian Latham is kind of where, where does he fit in? Because I think he looks like a Bandit. I think in some ways he plays like a Bandit, but he also always looked way more comfortable as an interior guy, as an interior pass rusher, but he just wasn't ever big enough at 278, 280 uh, 283, I think is what he was at at one time, never was big enough to hold up more than in pass specific situations. Um, and so where does he fit in? Can he stop the run well enough out there on the edge to kind of be your starting bandit? Uh, or does he continue to be a situational player? He had some drive to drive rotational ability. Uh, I'm not saying that he didn't, but I, I think predominantly and just really what, where he was at his best was as a, was as a situational interior pass rusher but then like I said at linebacker uh, you've got the sting position and you've got the the mic position and the mic I mean Deontay Lawson now that he's got a he had quite a bit of experience in 2022 then he becomes the guy as far as the field general defensively in 2023 there's some games that in some ways is going to help hopefully the injury stuff doesn't continue. But it did help get Jihad Campbell more snaps and more action, which I think is only going to be beneficial for this defense moving forward. But uh, Lawson, I think, is ready to man the mic spot, even though I think he could play Sting, which is essentially your weak sideline backer. I think Jihad Campbell has some positional flexibility where I think he could be an excellent sideline to sideline Sting, can do the, you know, get after the quarterback, can drop in coverage, very athletic guy, still getting comfortable playing in space. And and having the drop in coverage and just his situational awareness. You know, I think there were some issues at times with his run fits, but just he was a guy who continued to get better each and every week this past year. But not only do I think he can play the sting position very effectively, I think that if Alabama needed him to for whatever reason, even though I think they have a ton of wolf options, I think he could also play some wolf as well because he's got that edge history. He uh he lined up on the edge quite a bit for Alabama this past season. He was pretty darn effective at it. So he's got some flexibility there. Uh, Justin Jefferson, when I think of, if you want to think of the sting position and and what it entails, based off of what I've seen, which is not everything, but I've tried to dive in and kind of study. I feel like Justin Jefferson fits it to a T. He is that ultra athletic sideline to sideline heat seeking missile who can be a, a great pass coverage option can cover some tight ends, can cover some slot receivers, can do some different things for you. Now, I thought he looked instinctual. I thought he looked – I mean, just last spring, I was so impressed with him. Anybody that listens to the podcast or or watches the YouTube videos, you know I was a huge fan of of Justin Jefferson. And, And for one reason or another, it never came to fruition. And with Deontay Lawson and Jahad Campbell both at inside linebacker right now, and the fact that Justin Jefferson's now a senior, I mean, will he ever get his opportunity? But I, I think just if he can, I don't know where, where at whose expense or where it would come, but I just this guy just feels, feels built for this Womack defense. I really do believe that. Um, so second level, I think's in pretty good shape too, Jimmy.
1: Yeah, you know, that's one of uh, those off-ball linebackers. Here's something that's, that doesn't appear to be, to, my, to, to our limited knowledge right now, that doesn't appear to be changing much the, for the Mike and Will spots seem to be stay, saying the same. We just called it Will. Now it's going to be called Sting. But it, it's it's really not much of a change there, and we have every right to expect uh, that Deontay Lawson and, and Jihad Campbell will assume their, their starting roles like they would have uh, under the Saban defense, uh, and, and I think they'll do great. One thing I noticed about Washington's off-ball linebackers, Clint, they were bigger guys. They were bigger than Lawson and Jihad Campbell. I don't know why, and I don't know much about those dudes, but uh, I did notice they were bigger, like 250-pound guys, uh, and whereas Lawson and, and Jihad are more 230-pound guys. But, hey, Lawson and Campbell are awesome. I, I would go so far as to say they would be one of the better inside linebacker duos in all of college football, maybe even the best, but but uh, certainly up there uh, in terms of of the best duos. I think they're both going to be really high draft picks for that position. We know that position doesn't – traditionally go very high in the nfl draft but i think both of those guys will be drafted as high as you could reasonably expect inside linebackers to go uh that's how good they are and uh i agree some depth is there what i'd say about about uh jefferson that that's real interesting to me is uh you know under saban he didn't really sub much on defense the only substitutions happen really when you switch from nickel to dime when you switch to pass rush and he played about six or seven defensive linemen because those bigger guys wear out. So he'd play six or seven defensive linemen. He'd sub based on run versus pass. But other than that, there wasn't much substitution at all in the defense. He, for instance, he'd play his six defensive backs, his four regular guys, plus a nickel plus a dime. He'd play those six guys every, every single down the whole game until he declared that the game was over and it was garbage time. And then he'd put in the backups, but Nick did not substitute on defense at most positions. And it'll be interesting to me, maybe Kalen DeBoer and Kane Womack will. I I don't know. I mean, well, that's one of those things that we're going to find out. Will they play more players? I I think it's important to play more players just simply because the sport's changing. You got to play more games. You got to play your biggest games, maybe at the end of the season, the playoff. To me, that means having fresher players. Uh, You're going to get into your depth. Kids are going to get hurt and miss a couple games. I think you need to play more players, just because hey, we're going from what used to be a two-team playoff, then went to a four-team. Now you're a 12-team, and it's fair for Alabama to plan to make the playoff every year. You won't, but you plan, and to me, that means playing more guys. Let's see if DeBoer does that.
0: Yeah, and and with the with the Mike and the the sting positions, one slight difference, even though they are pretty much the same, um. Jahad Campbell and Deontay Lawson, they were lined up on the line of scrimmage for 80 snaps combined. Uh jihad Campbell was 43. Deontay Lawson was 37. So exactly 80 snaps. The two inside, the two starting inside linebackers, James Miller and Trey Kaiser for South Alabama, they were lined up on the line of scrimmage, 18 total snaps, 10 for one, eight for the other. But at the same time, they send their off-ball linebackers after the quarterback like they will have pass rush opportunities but they do so more from an off ball position like alabama yeah yeah Yeah. and i mean alabama with with campbell and lawson they did some of that as well where they would time it up and, and, and attack in those ways they would sneak up to the line of scrimmage right before the ball was snapped and they'd blitz but you actually also saw them in a lot of situations lining up out there on the edge Even Deontay Lawson, it was more strictly an off-ball guy. Obviously, Campbell played less snaps and spent more of his time on the line of scrimmage than Lawson did, but it was only slightly. Uh, So it's a little bit different from that standpoint, but pretty much everything else is very similar. The responsibilities are similar. The fact they're going to be asked to get sideline to sideline. And you will see, I mean, there's times where it looks kind of 3-3-esque because the Wolf is playing off the line of scrimmage. you got three down linemen and three linebackers. Might not be 3-3 three, three stack, but it's, you know, that's kind of the alignment and how things will look. And then you've got, you know, the Husky position, which is really interesting. I don't want to, I know you need to go and we need to hop off here. But, uh, you know, the 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 Husky is essentially the star. I think it's a little bit more strong side linebacker where it's a little bit more run oriented because that is such a, a, a an emphasis for Kane Womack and, and his defense. But I think that and we've talked about this before, but I think Tony Mitchell is just the ideal candidate for that spot where you question: is he a linebacker? Is he a safety? Malachi Moore could a very, very well end up playing that spot. He's continued to bulk up. I think he's right at 200 pounds now. Um, you know, came in I think in the 185, 188 range. So he's gained a ton of weight year over year. Very good build. Think he could hold up there as well. Even though I think he'd be a better rover. Uh, but the secondary I think is is interesting as well. Do you have any quick thoughts on that before we hop out of here?
1: No, not at all exactly exactly what you said. I couldn't agree more. I think Tony Mitchell is the is the is the blue the blueprint. I mean for for what I believe Kane Womick wants in his Husky is Tony Mitchell. In terms of that's that's the bill, that's the skill set, that's the guy. Uh, but he's very young uh, as a redshirt freshman. I, I don't suspect he would be an immediate starter. He might be. That's a big thing this spring. Is Tony Mitchell going to be a guy that can start right away? Uh, but Malachi Moore might not be the prototype for Husky, but his skill set probably allows for it. I mean, it I think skill-wise he gets away with it because he is tough. Pound for pound, this kid's as tough as leather. He's a very good run defender for a defensive back. Um, I think Malachi Moore might be the guy at Husky, even though he's not the ideal uh probably just put Tony Mitchell on in, in the uh, incubator for one more year, and then he kind of takes it over next year. But I, I see Malachi doing it. I agree with you, though, Clint. One one great thing about Malachi is his positional versatility. Who knows? They, they may decide to play Malachi more on the back end, play someone else up, up, up close, whether it's Tony Mitchell, whether it's Bray Hubbard, whether it's one of the new guys or maybe somebody they go get out of the portal.
0: I think portal, uh, you know, will, will be interesting and could decide a lot there because you – You essentially have three starting safeties. So I think Malachi Moore is going to be one of them, whether it be at the Husky or the Rover. Uh, Devontae Smith's probably going to be your free. And then it's a matter of, is it Tony Mitchell? If it's Tony Mitchell, I would think Malachi Moore is going to play Rover. Uh, Not necessarily. It's possible Mitchell plays Rover and Moore plays Husky. uh, Yeah, Husky. I get Husky and Wolf confused a little bit, still working on that. But if it ends up being a guy who I think can can contribute – not from day one necessarily, but early is Peyton Woodyard. If he ends up being that third safety and he proves ready to contribute or ready to start, then I could see him playing safety, uh, that rover spot and Malachi Moore playing Husky. So it could depend on who ends up. Malachi Moore has that flexibility. That's what I really like about him. So who ends up being that third safety could end up deciding a lot. And if they take the Trey Amos, Jalen Key route, where post spring they go out and they find somebody who can very much help this defense, uh, that could dictate, based off of their skill set, who ends up, uh, you know, where Malachi Moore ends up lining up and who ends up manning that Husky spot. But Jimmy, uh, I appreciate your time talking about all this. This Has been fun. I hope it's been informative for the listeners. Uh, we'll be doing a lot more of this, diving a lot more in depth into the personnel and what we think. And you know, uh, I, I think uh, you know we'll have we'll have a lot of fun with it. And that's just offensively and defensively. So I uh, appreciate you as always, buddy.
1: No, it's always fun, and uh, hey, let's hope you get to watch some uh, spring practice and we can really hash it out here on uh, on the show. Uh, I,
0: that will be the most key thing, in my opinion. Now, granted, it depends on what they let us watch, but if they can get in some personnel groupings and we can just see, okay, who's lining up at Bandit, who's lining up at Wolf early, doesn't mean things can't change, who's lining up at, lining up at Husky versus Rover. I think once we actually start getting some definitive ideas of where guys are at, we can really start diving into how that impacts things, their skill set, how it fits, and we'll have a lot of fun. So hopefully we can we can make that happen. Um, really hoping so. Once again, appreciate you. Appreciate all the listeners. If you haven't already, go subscribe to Mail Online. Go over there to the Roundtable message board. A lot of conversation. A lot of this kind of conversation happening. Love all the interaction from the subscribers. Love the fact that we're able to get involved like we are. Um, and we'll keep that going. So appreciate you guys. And we'll talk to you soon.